And I think this is such a, a huge part of the equation for people who aren't married is choosing the right spouse. You know, I, I just don't think, I don't think we can understate that or, you know, or, or overstate that, you know, like that, that is a huge part of the equation. And, and she's really been a blessing. She's trusted me to, to kind of lead us in that direction. And that was a real struggle at first. You're listening to the Millionaire's Unveiled podcast, where you'll hear the stories and interviews of everyday millionaires. We'll unveil their decisions, their strategies, and their current portfolio allocation. Now to your hosts, Clark Sheffield and Jace Mattinson. Welcome back to another episode of the Millionaire's Unveiled podcast. This is episode number 192. Clark, how's it going? What's going on in your world? Good, man. How are you doing? Nothing doing, too crazy with me here. Yeah, doing great, man. Just uh, just rocking and rolling here in the summertime. We're getting close to episode 200. Getting super excited for that, obviously. We've got a lot of fun things that we've been putting together in the pipeline uh, for the podcast. And you and I personally coming up here this summer and into the fall. So we've got a lot of great things to announce here pretty soon. Uh, real excited about that. Yeah, and then with the fall starts uh, school, obviously, again. And I saw an article this week talking about introducing personal finance education into more elementary and junior high schools and high schools, or not elementary, but junior highs and high schools. And and so this article, this is just on CNBC, it says, uh, so far in 2021, 25 states in the U.S. have introduced legislation that would add personal finance education to their high school curriculum. And it, they mentioned the states, Arkansas, Hawaii, Nebraska, Colorado, Nevada, And then it says seven states, Virginia, Alabama, Tennessee, Missouri, Utah, North Carolina, and Mississippi have the gold standard of personal finance education, a standalone half-semester course that focuses only on personal finance. Beyond that, about 21 states require some personal finance education, but say it can be incorporated into another course. So that's a pretty interesting change, I feel like, that's new, right? I never took any personal finance class until I got to college. Did you? Yeah, no, I didn't I didn't really have anything either. I mean, obviously, I took some finance-type related classes in, in high school, uh, one of my elective courses, just because I was interested in it, but it wasn't really geared toward personal finance. It was just more towards, you know, finance in general and corporate finance, I guess, to, to some degree. But yeah, I think it's great. Keep getting our, our, our young people educated. I mean, a lot of this probably happens at the home if it happens at all. And in some cases, it probably doesn't happen until most people are, are grownups. You know, that's why we have so many people getting involved into it, you know, in their 30s and 40s and 50s because they never were taught at a younger age. So I think it's I think it's great legislation. And hopefully the programs that are put in place are beneficial to, to students. You know, I have I have my own thoughts on 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 education and how we educate and stuff but I, I do think spending time on things that are more applicable for for people's lives is definitely a, a step in the right direction versus you know things that maybe we spend a lot of time on and a lot of money on that don't really further people's education or they basically learn the information to take the test and, and move on i'm sure you did a little bit of that even in college didn't you clark Right, right, for sure. Like what you're required to take. <laughs> yeah. oh, I mean, nerdy people like us, right, CPAs and into personal finance. I mean, I think we'd agree that I, w- I would at least say that everybody should be required to take a personal finance class in college before they graduate. Yeah, 
I agree. I just, you know, you could cover basics too of insurance, home insurance, car insurance, medical bills. I mean, all this stuff that you really don't figure out in life until you're thrown into the situation. And I don't know, I don't know if everybody would take away a lot, but at least when something happened in their, you know, real life after they graduate, it wouldn't be the first time they see something. Yeah, just building that foundation. And I think, I think you're, you're totally right. College and maybe even a high school because not everybody goes to college. And just making sure that, that for the most part, we've got a somewhat educated population as it relates to things that are, are very applicable and they're going to actually experience across all facets, no matter where they live, no matter what city, no matter what industry they get into, they're, they're going to experience having to deal with finances, taxes, etc. So let's, let's educate them a little bit on it. You know, instead of spending time on German polka history or whatever, you know, that we, <laughs> we have to take, you know, it's like, all right, man, like, uh, you know, I'll take the test and forget about all this stuff because it's not really applicable for, for me. But not that history is not good. I think it's good to learn from history. But no, the big the big thing, especially in high school, would be uh, student loans. Right? Yeah, because totally. You don't want right to you. learn that your senior year of high school and then realize you really messed up. So I think the first step in high school would be student loans and what that really means before you go out and take out a bunch of loans to get a degree that you, that you struggle to pay back. Yeah, totally. So last week's episode, we had Jeff, the wealthy custodian. You remember him from episode number 47, released in September 2018. Super popular guest. We had him back on to kind of discuss how he's moved into that next phase of his life and discuss about how, you know, he really has become that that millionaire on less than than $50,000. So, great episode with him. Really appreciated it to him and his contributions to the show. So, it makes this show super great. This week we've got Jay. Jay's got a net worth of $1.3 million just over. We get into his story, how he's got his net worth allocated, you know, his investments and strategy. Appreciate you engaging online. We had a great listener question come in this week that we'll be playing with future interviews here shortly. If you're interested, submit a question. Ask a millionaire on SpeakPipe on our website, millionairesunveiled.com, and we'll go ahead and add that in to you know, various interviews that we do over the next uh, you know, several weeks. Without any further delay, let's get into the episode with Jay. Jay, do you want to just give us a little about your background and what you're up to now? Yeah, absolutely, guys. The first, thanks for having me on. Uh, I'm 35. I'm an engineer. I work for the Department of Defense. And my wife is also a, an engineer. She works full-time for the Department of Defense also. We're both uh, civil servants. And what's your net worth? So our liquid net worth just in equities is a little over 1.5. And with our house and vehicles and just uh, all assets, we are at 1.8, right at 1.8 million. Dang, man. That's awesome. So let's get into that a little bit. You got 1.5 in equities. How is that broken up? Is that retirement accounts, cash? Yeah. So I'll, I'll kind of start from the biggest and work backwards. So our largest, unfortunately, I don't want it to be this way, but it is. Our largest is a taxable account. It's just under 700 k sitting at 695 right now. Uh, our 401ks are in something called the Thrift Savings Plan, which is the government's uh, 401k. It's at 461. And then we both have Roth IRAs. We're out of the uh, contribution limits, but we do backdoor Roth IRAs. And that's at 217. We both have, uh, we have 529s for all of our kids. We have three kids, age five and under, uh, five, three, and one. And we're right at 157K in their 529s. And then we have a little bit of cash on the side. You're crushing it. So is that all in index funds, mutual funds, or individual stocks? Yeah. So we actually, currently, we have no individual stocks. I have in the past, and I will talk about that later. 
mine personally was more like in the mistakes part of this uh, interview. But uh, most of ours is in, uh, in it's all in index funds. Most of it's mutual funds. And we just recently started getting into uh, exchange traded funds because I wanted to go after something pretty specific. Wow. And has the allocation always been like that since you started investing? No, it hasn't. So we've, when I first started out, I just, I just kept it simple. You know, I bought the whole market. I think the, uh, the Vanguard total stock market index and the total international stock market index. And I tried to stick with that. And then from there, you know, we've actually owned some bonds in our past. We've been cash uh, home investors in our two primary residences we, we've owned. I know we'll talk about that. But to get ready for that, we, we actually got in some bonds and so a decent amount there. Uh, we've had both uh, just total total bond market index for Vanguard, and we've owned uh, some municipal bonds, so some uh, intermediate term bonds to get ready for those uh, those purchases, just to try to reduce the risk a little bit before having to buy. Interesting. Do you think you'll keep this portfolio allocation going forward as you continue to grow your net worth? I think so. You know, we're we're trying to correct back to something uh, more like what I'd like to be. Currently, we are. Let's see. I'll, I'll pull it up for you here. Yeah, we're between large, mid, and small cap and international. We're just over 40% large cap right now and about 25%, 25% mid and small and then 10% international. So I'm trying to correct that back. I'd like to be uh, about 70, 30 US to international, but I, I do see keeping this going forward. What I'd like to do is, uh, actually like to get some tax advice, some professional tax advice here coming up and, and, um, and try to figure out ways we can funnel less towards our taxable account and more towards some tax sheltered plans. And so I've kind of run out of ideas. We've been self-managed now you know, since we've been married uh, for the past seven years. And uh, I'm running out of, of good ideas for how to, how to get some tax sheltering. Yeah, interesting. Now, you said you've got about 300K in home equity. Is that a paid for house or do you still have some debt on that? No, that's totally paid for. So we bought our first house in cash, the, the starter home. And then uh, we upgraded once we had three kids into our our current residence. And that was just a cash purchase. Wow, that's pretty remarkable. So always been debt-free then? I have. My wife never had any student loans. She's We've both been really blessed by that. We have great families. Uh, Her family bought uh, our state's prepaid tuition plan. So she never had any debt coming out. actually went to the Air Force Academy. So I never had any debt coming out. We got a, a small loan when we were there. It's like a career starter loan. And so I guess you could consider that kind of a student loan, but it was just a $30,000 loan, personal loan at 1% interest. And so that was paid off within five years, according to their payoff schedule. And I actually invested that all in 2007, right before this really, really awesome time in the market. Uh, and so <laughs> I learned, learned from that. And uh, I used a lot of the, that was part of what went into buying my first uh, first house with cash. And that was in 2011. I bought that house. So the house in cash, how much was the house? The first house was 145k, and how much do you think it's worth now? Uh, so actually, we just sold it last uh, last oh, okay. year. Uh-huh. Yeah, we sold that house and we we bought this one, and it, it appreciated to 185. Nice. And we actually, it's been a red hot real estate market here, and uh, it's kind of a, yeah, it's an interesting. But a major Japanese car manufacturer is building a plant in our hometown, mm-hmm. and uh, they bought the house with cash to put some of their Japanese auto workers in. Oh, really? uh, and, re- and rent it out to them. So yeah, it, that, we did it for sale by owner. Yeah. And then you bought the other house cash too. So your second home. Okay. Right. So for sale by owner, let's talk about that. Cause I think, I think people hear about it a lot, but don't necessarily do it. Was it harder to sell? 
no, not for us. So we didn't actually start out that way. And it's, it's, a, it's an interesting story. We started interviewing real estate agents. And so we interviewed four or five agents to the point my wife thought, you know, I was just being ridiculous. But the, the thing we heard over and over is just because there's so much business coming into this area uh, and, and, and a lot of construction happening that there's just not enough supply of houses on the market. And so every it's, it's like the same script over and over. And what we heard them say was, we'll list your house on a Thursday and we'll sell it by Sunday night. And that's it. Uh, and you'll have multiple offers. They'll all be above asking price. Wow. And so, you know, by the, the fourth or fifth person, I'm with my wife and I'm thinking, you know, why do we need to pay them? Because, you know, the, the, the agent's uh, fees. Right. And so we, we started researching a little bit and saying, like, is this even is it even possible? Uh, and we they gave us market reports. So I knew what their pricing strategy was going to be going in. And uh, I just I did some research on it. I didn't know anybody who'd ever sold their own house. And so we did some research and uh, we hired a professional photographer, got it listed on MLS, played a, a, paid a, a flat fee provider on the Internet to do it. And there were some challenges there. You know, I'd much rather it had been easier to do it through somebody. But we saved about right at about eight thousand uh, dollars, seventy five hundred dollars just doing it on our own. So it, it was worth it. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Good for you. So you guys are crushing it here. Right. I mean, you're, you're really young net worth, high net worth, almost $2 million. If you include the house, how did this happen so quickly? Yeah. So it's kind of interesting. So I think really to tell the story, uh, my story anyway, you kind of have to start with the family, right? We're, we're both very close with our families. We both have really good families. And my story in particular is kind of, I think it's kind of cool, but all the way back, my family has always been farmers. It's always been agriculture is, is kind of the, the area we live in. And they just came from nothing. I mean, nothing. And so I think a lot of people have this story. It's a, I think it's part of the American story. That's not the immigrant part of the story, which is also awesome. Uh, you know, I love the immigrant story. But that, we have the same thing. So my parents just, just absolutely came from nothing. They learned like what other people learn on a farm, right? You learn how to do everything yourself, to grow your own food, to fix everything. It's that that kind of self, uh, self-subsistence, you know, like very strong independence and really strong frugality uh, is taught you know, from generation to generation. So they, they kind of escaped that and they both knew they wanted something different. And so they pursued education and, uh, and they're like that kind of classic story, right? First in their family to graduate high school, first in their family to, to go to college. And they became professionals in, in a sense. My mom's a nurse and my dad was a cop. And so, you know, they, they kind of, they taught us the same thing. You know, they, the power of saving, the power of education, was something they just preached, you know, to us growing up. And so we knew there's no other choice, but we had to go to college. And and they didn't talk a lot about investing. That was, I'd say, one thing looking back is, and nobody ever taught them. You know, they didn't have any kind of training, uh, any kind of uh, mentors and in investing, you know, the time value money and uh, the power of compounding interest, right? They, they didn't really know that. And the stock market was kind of scary to them coming out of parents who lived through the depression, you know, their parents. And so... But very much from an early age, my, my grandma preached anytime we, she gave us money, I was like, take this and put it in the bank and one day you'll have something. Right. So I just I can still remember her telling me that put this away and one day you'll have something. And so growing up, you know, worked, worked jobs, I had an entrepreneurial streak. I think that comes really strong from my family. Kind of funny. Uh, my great granddad, like they were totally broke. So he ended up taking part of his corn, bro- corn crop one year and uh, they decided they were going to start making whiskey. And so that's like the classic American South story, right? Like, uh, they got into, to, to making whiskey and, uh, <laughs> they, they sold it to, to distributors and wholesalers and 
so that's kind of the the entrepreneurial spirit, right? So uh, my my granddad worked in a factory and, and bought a farm so that he could make some extra money on the side. You know, so he had a side hustle going before they were called side hustles. And uh, so, you know, I think our families have a huge impact on us. We see good behaviors or bad behaviors. And uh, could, luckily, I was able to build on that working through, you know, working through high school, working through college, being at the academy. We had a personal finance and investing class that we took and it really taught me. That's the first time I remember seeing compound interest. What is that? Why it's important to start, you know, as early as you can. So that's why it started. And my wife had a good background too and no debt. And we were able to, to meet up and, and kind of uh, put our incomes together. Yeah. And then obviously good income and putting it in the market and having a good last 10 years or so, right? A strong market that obviously helps too. Absolutely. Yeah. So, I mean, having lived through, you know, the, the 2008, 2009 timeframe and just seeing what that, what that does and, so luckily it gave some resilience. You know, there's, there's a whole generation of investors out there. I realize, you know, out on Robinhood or doing whatever, and they've never seen a huge downturn until, until COVID. Uh, so I, I'm happy. We're fortunate to have seen a downturn and now too, I guess. And there's others in between, but yeah, right. to know this isn't normal. <laughs> so did you guys live super frugally or did you feel like you were still doing what you wanted to do, but just saving at the same time? So we've lived frugally. I, I'd say, you know, so I told you my family background. My wife really came from a wealthy family. And uh, so I would say her, they were very frugal as well, but not to the level that my family was. So uh, they taught her good habits coming into the marriage. And I have to really give her credit. And I think you know, this is such a, a huge part of the equation for people who aren't married is choosing the right spouse. You know, I, I just don't think I don't think we can understate that or, you know, or, or overstate that, you know, like. That that is a huge part of the equation, and and she's really been a blessing. She's trusted me to to kind of lead us in that direction, and that was a real struggle at first. I remember when we first got married, it was really hard for her to see her friends on social media getting, especially new cars. So we we drive like beaters, you know. I'll tell you about that if you want to know about it. But that was really hard for her. She's like, you know, my best friend just got a new car. I, it sure would be nice to have a new car, and so we had to kind of walk through that and. You know, just pulling up, you know, investing calculators, financial calculators and being like, hey, you know, if we take what would be a car payment, if we take what will be, you know, a $40,000, $50,000 car and invest it, look what it will be in 10 years. What can we do with that kind of money in 10 years? And so her like starting small and I, I think her seeing that, you know, over the years we've been together has really paid off and, and hopefully, you know, shown her. And here we are talking to you guys, you know, seven years later. So there's been some results, clearly. No, it's it's amazing. Congrats on your guys' success, and thanks for your service in the Air Force, obviously, as well. Yeah, thanks. So along that, with the savings and the frugality and what we're talking about, do you have a sense of what your savings rate has been? Yes, it's kind of interesting. I've never actually, until we kind of preparing to talk to you guys, I've never just calculated it out as far as our you know percentage of our gross income, but we're actually saving 54% of our gross uh, between the two of us, and we've made that a priority from the start. Uh, and we kind of worked backwards based off savings. And then, of course, there's our taxes. So we actually live off of 20% of our gross. And of that, you know, over $20,000 a, a year goes to daycare to keep our kids on the, uh, on the military installation. So we actually live household expenses, you know, insurance premiums, all, everything you can think of, food, entertainment. We live on about $30,000 a year. So that's really what's, what's given us this horsepower. So was the savings rate higher before the kids came? 
Yes. Or, or rather, were the the household expenses lower? Right. I assume, unless you guys were traveling more, or maybe you were doing different things. Yeah, I would say before kids, we were we were probably giving more uh, than we are now. So we we drew down some of that uh, a couple of years ago because we had to start. Well, we were going to have to start batching our giving. So I know you guys know about that, but we were under the standard deduction for our giving. And so we actually started holding off so we could batch it. And so we that was about two years ago. Anyway, we haven't actually started that process. We're still in the, in the batching phase. And, and you're saying so that you, you itemize every other year, right? Is that what you're talking about? Yes, that was the strategy we were going for. So we, we actually got to, as part of a free kind of seminar at work, uh, a wealth advisor came out, ended up like talking to him a little bit. And I never even, it was a total blind spot I'd never thought about. Uh, was after the tax laws changed, you know, we, we itemized every year until the tax, tax laws changed and the, uh, the standard deduction went higher. And so we were under that standard deduction limit for a couple of years and I, I never honestly thought about it. <laughs> so right, that's right. when we had to change strategy. Yeah. So that's, that's a unique strategy, right? And just for our, our listeners, right? When the standard deduction went up to what is it? Jay, 24, 25,000, 26, somewhere around there, right? Yep. Right. And and so before it was what was it before twelve? Also oh, twelve thousand, I think. Yeah, yeah. yeah twelve thousand. So before, if you itemized, especially if you lived in a high cost of living area, right, with high state and local taxes like New York or California, you could often itemize that because of that. But when they capped that threshold, right, it wasn't necessarily as easy to itemize if you lived in one of those areas unless you had a super high amount of charitable contributions. So that's what he's talking about here. So. Jumping back to your upbringing, Jay, you, you talked about how your parents kind of instilled this in you and they taught you and they gave you this foundation. How did you then take that to investing? How did you then take that to say, this is what I want to do. Here's what I'm going to learn. And these are the decisions I want to start making. Because I feel like oftentimes that comes from somebody who's influential, right? You meet someone or you come across a book or an article or have a conversation where that becomes the focus. So how did that happen for you? Yeah, that's, it's a great question. So I would say that transition happened in college for me. So coming out of high school, I, I still remember in, in high school, something was interesting. I was interested in how do I maximize money, my income, uh, even like, you know, working after school jobs in high school. And I remember going to the bank one time and talking to them. And, and one of the things, the only real exposure I had to investments was you know a, a, a checking account, a savings account, a CD, and I learned about bonds on my own. Nobody else told me what a bond was, and that, so and to be clear, I don't really think a checking account or a savings account is an investment or a CD. <laughs> so, I mean, I know it's a you know cash only uh, type of investment, but that's that's clearly not what we're talking about here. So I learned about bonds, and then I was in there one day, and and I was talking to to one of the reps in the bank, and he asked me, you know, do do you know anything about stocks? mutual funds. So we kind of talked about it a little bit. And uh, I talked to my dad and he, he was, you know, like to him, like red flags started going up, right? The stock market is risk, it's danger. And uh, that has changed over time, by the way, with him. But so actually I talked to him and I, I talked to him until let me, he didn't have to let me, I wasn't, I mean, he, he let me make my own decisions, but yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I talked to my, yeah. yeah, I talked to my dad and, and I invested a little bit into a conservative, I don't know what it is anymore. It was a conservative mutual fund and aggressive mutual fund. And then I watched it constantly, which is the worst thing you could do. And within a couple of months, you know, I had lost, uh, I, I want to say I put in like $8,000. I lost like 300 bucks within a couple of months. And it was just like the world was over, right? I was so upset. I pulled my money out and my dad just felt terrible. And I remember to this day, he paid me the money that I lost out of his own pocket. And so it's such a teachable moment 
right? But he, he just he just he didn't he wasn't grown up like he didn't grow up like that either. And so uh, going off to college, all my money, and I put it into Series I bonds, right? The Treasury bills, and because that was the the best thing going at the time. And so I went to college. The track I went at the academy was it's called Systems Engineering Management, and it's almost where business meets engineering. And so part of my business curriculum, I had to take you know financial accounting. I had to take, you know, uh, personal finance and investing. I had to take, you know, managerial economics. And, and some of my professors were really open about their real estate investments. Uh, you know, you guys are, are definitely big proponents of real estate. And, and we started learning about stocks and bonds and in uh, returns. And so that's what happened. Mine came through formal education. And I know everybody's different, but that was my first exposure to it with someone who really, you know, it was presented well in a way I could understand it. And, um, and I remember staying after class talking to my professors about it, you know, asking them what they were doing. And at that time, I had just barely started getting into some stocks. I was going through, um, you know, one of the investment houses and my fees were huge. And I, did, I didn't even know what that was, you know. So they started talking to me and saying, well, have you thought about your expense ratios? And I said, no, I, you know, tell, you know, tell me more kind of thing. And so they were the first people to recommend Vanguard, which is just, you know, one of many, many options out there, uh, low cost uh, investment houses. But anyway, so that's how I got into it yeah 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 no i know you mentioned that that college class and i was just curious if you had another conversation but it sounds like some time with your dad right helped you learn that so yes i've said this on the show a couple times jace i think we've talked about this that people listen to this show i think for a few different reasons one one is to hear the allocation right of how millionaires invest their money two is to hear the story right about how they did it and then three which is becoming more popular as we talk to people is they want to understand psychologically what motivates people to invest, to grow their income, to grow their net worth. So what is that for you? I mean, obviously, you're so young and you have almost $2 million here in net worth. What's been the motivation? Is it freedom? Is it to care for your family? Is it so that you're not poor, that you have opportunity, that you can travel? I mean, what's the motivation here for you? Yeah, good question. I, I think the motivation isn't freedom per se. And I don't think it's, it's not to be poor because I never really thought that I was going to be poor, especially after getting an education, getting the military and just kind of seeing the world a little bit. And it's like, okay, it's, it's going to be okay. All I ever really wanted to be was to be comfortable. I remember telling my friends that it's like, I just want to be comfortable and have a, a good living. That's, that's really it. And the biggest goal for me was $100,000 a year in income. And I remember saying that at the academy and I was thinking, okay, if I make it to Lieutenant Colonel, I can make $100,000 a year, 20 years from now. Right. And we actually hit that in the early thirties. So that was kind of, okay, well now what? Right. So, and we started in, and you know, a million dollars is kind of that goal for everybody. You know, it, it, there's something special about that. And then that came and went and like, okay, well, well now what? But I, but I think at the end of the day, you know, deep down we're, when my wife says like, you know, why can't, why can't I have a new car early on? Right. And I think a, a big part of that was for me was to build options, to, to buy them option space. Where and I tell her all the time, you know, if something bad happened to me, I want you to be taken care of. And um, so part of the reason I had to get out of the military, I have a pre-existing condition, and which makes getting life insurance really crazy expensive for me. And so I haven't told her just in the last couple of weeks is, you know, I would like to have ten to twelve times my annual salary in life insurance. I don't. I have about half that, and that's just what I'm able to get through my government job. But getting it from the outside is is crazy. It's not affordable. Like well, you know. It's not reasonable. And so what I'd like to do is I'd like to take care of them. And I, I get a sense of peace out of that, knowing that, you know, if the worst were to happen, they're going to be fine financially. It's one less thing for them to have to worry about. There's going to be plenty already. 
right? So I, I think that's really a motivator for sure. us and to be able to provide for our kids. Everybody wants a good future for their kids. And I would like them to be able to start out like we did without having that kind of weight around your neck of, of mm-hmm. this huge debt. I remember one of, one of the guys that I work with is a fantastic gentleman. He's from New York and he went to, to school down in, in Florida for, he went to a private college in Florida. And we're in our mid thirties and I remember having a conversation with him and he still has $80,000 in student loan debt. And I just remember think like, it's hard to breathe, like thinking about that to me because you know, we've been debt free for a long, long time. And I just, I, I just felt for him, you know, and uh, I don't want that for our kids if we can help it at all. Yeah, that's a good answer, right? And we've had people come on the show that, that have had that amount of debt or more, right? And and haven't become doctors or lawyers and they talk about how crippling it's been. And now that right. they've been able to climb out of it and I mean, the ones that we're interviewing have obviously done that and have a higher net worth of at least a million bucks or something. So so they've been able to climb out, but I mean, spot you're spot on, right? They they talk about that. So as you, what age did you become a millionaire? I was 33. My wife was 31. And it, it was just by happenstance. It wasn't like we, you know, we try not to look. <laughs> we, we really do because we, I'd say, first off, we don't want our, our worth to come from this. We don't want, we don't want a, like a seed of a love for money and, and this like materialism. We really want to fight against that. And so we looked every once in a while. And I think by the time we looked, we were actually almost like 1.2. And so I remember we were sitting on the couch, we were, we were watching Netflix and she just wants to know if there's enough money to like, can I, are we okay? You know, if we're, <laughs> if, if, are we okay? Everything? Okay. I'm okay. Good. I'm, I'm going to go back to, right. Yeah. Right. And so I'm sitting on the couch. I'm, I'm running the spreadsheets, you know, and we're watching Netflix and I kind of was like, Hey, we're, we're millionaires. And, uh, and she looked at me and she's like, really? I was like, yeah. Okay. That's cool. And so we just kind of, it, it was the, <laughs> it was the weird, I'll never forget. It was the weirdest thing. And we just kind of turned the show back on. Yeah. And, uh, it was, it was really weird. So along this journey and, and since becoming millionaire and almost two here, are there a couple things that you can point to that say, hey, that's what did it for me? Was it that you started investing early? I mean, obviously, a piece of it was that you didn't have any debt, right? So you could start investing right away and that you took action and did. But anything that you can point to, whether it's you worked hard in your career, you tried to move up or I mean, what, what made you a millionaire that you could point to? I think the the willingness to take risk. And that's going to be you know, compared to some, some other people, like some of you guys and a lot of the listeners, like you would laugh at a person who's a bureaucrat and part of the government system. You laugh at them for saying that they are willing to take, to take risk, right? Cause this is like the most unrisky <laughs> assured job. Almost like if, if a tenure could have like a suit, you know, a tenured professor could have like super tenure. That's what that is, right? It's, it's very stable, but we have actually taken risks. We, you know, I've been okay with taking risk early, uh, in our investments. And being okay with it, you know, and trying not to look and not to let it affect our lifestyle. So I said that's, that's one. The second thing was, was taking risk actually in our positions. So where we are in the government, we really have to move to, to advance. And there's a certain risk associated with that, you know, especially, you know, your first job out of college, moving away from that for some people can be kind of an emotional thing, you know, a decision. But, um, I actually left a permanent government job to move to a temporary job, you know, and so that's kind of a weird thing that I'm sure some companies do, but in the government, it, it is very much like a tenured position, your permanent employee. I voluntarily gave that up to join this other much larger pool of government workers, a different organization, because there's just a lot more room to advance over there. And people, I will never forget, uh, they did not have good things to say about that. Like you, you've lost your mind. 
but I took, it was, there's a 25% raise and I, f- I figured, you know, okay, I'll hopefully, you know, we'll land my wife. She's, she's bringing in the stable income and, uh, maybe we can, we can pivot this into a permanent job and that's what happened. And so things like that, uh, willingness to move, willingness to take risks, uh, has been a big factor, but then you know, beyond marrying the right spouse, cause that's huge. You know, uh, I would say the other thing is, uh, oh, lifestyle to lifestyle is, has been the biggest asset for us. Jay, as you've gone on this journey, you bring up risk. How do you evaluate risk, whether it's in your investments or taking that job, that new position you talked about? Because, you know, one might look from the outside and say, well, I don't think that's much risk, but you feel it's risk. So how do you evaluate risk? Yeah, that's a good question. I'll have to think about that for a second. So I guess you let me ask this: Why, why, why is why do you consider an investment what you've done with your portfolio? Why is that considered risk to you? Well, I would say because it's always harder to put faith in something that you can't see, right? And so this is all numbers. We're going to take real dollars and cents out of our pockets and put it into something on the screen, right? That that it's it's numbers on my laptop, right? And so uh, I'd say that there's some level of fundamental risk there to say. I'm going to give up having a material something now or a material comfort or a trip now for something that I can't see for some hope that's going to be delivered in the future. And so I would say there's, you know, a basic level of, of risk there. But for me, you know, I guess how I evaluate risk is what is the worst that can happen? Okay. So, you know, a 50% downturn, would I really be able to, to keep that invested? And, I, you know, and, and there's differences. I think in behaviors between an equity investor and a real estate investor, and I have no exposure really to real estate investing, so I can't even imagine the the challenges there. But I know one of the biggest challenges is as an equity investor solely is ourselves, right? So how much risk am I really willing to stomach when a you know a two thousand eight two thousand nine happens? And so having come through that, you can be more confident in what your answer is going to be. We buy in downturns, so I'd say that how we evaluate risk is. I try to look at the big picture and realize that it's going to be okay, especially because we're well diversified. I've only ever bought one individual stock and it's just not required in my opinion. I just think most people, the vast majority of people don't need to do that. You know, you certainly you can and I have in the past, but uh, it's not, it didn't get us to our first million. I'll tell you that. Oh, it's an interesting answer. And I, and I, I think it's an interesting discussion too, because everyone evaluates risk a little bit differently and you bring it up. As it relates to your investment portfolio, but here you are sitting at at one point, you know, eight million dollars, and with a significant net worth for your age, and you know, from the outside, one might say, "Well, there's no risk involved, right?" But we've also had a bull market. But yeah, like you mentioned, you know, walking down that path of what's the worst that can happen. I mean, there is there's still an element of it could go down, right? And it and right. it has gone down. It's just. Mm-hmm. That long-term play, right? For the most part, statistically speaking, you know, investments in, in equities and the markets have gone up. Uh, I will tell you one risk that does bother me. I've considered it, and we've talked about it. And so, this is where I'd like to to learn from you guys. You know, guys like you, is we have been interested in the past in in getting into real estate investing, and I I love some of the some of the you know advantages that are available there. One of the things that I do worry about. And I know that, you know, in economic downturns, I've heard people's stories losing, you know, they, they lose their uh, assets, especially, you know, in real estate. And uh, I know Dave Ramsey is famous for that, right? And I've looked at some of the numbers and to, to make it work for us, 
at my initial thought is that we would need to leverage, you know, to use mortgages to uh, to make it worth uh, the, the, to make the ROI. We would need to, to to have to make it worth it to us versus equity investments. But I do worry about taking on leveraged, you know, to take on debt. I worry about the risk that would pose to the other 1.8, right? So I don't want to. I would want to do that smartly and and not do it kind of haphazardly where we're going to put a risk and put everything we worked for at risk. So that's one thing it does kind of it maybe makes me take pause. I'm less comfortable with that than equities risk. Interesting. Is that the main reason you haven't ventured into real estate or, or at least a lot of real estate at this point? Yeah, that, I would say that's that's not the main reason, actually. The main reason is first, it scares me. Uh, because I, I'm I'm scared of what I would be, <laughs> what it, what kind of person I would become, because I know that I would just become obsessed and and just totally dive into it, you know, and and just spend every waking hour like learning what I could and putting our money into it and trying to you know uh, evaluate deals, and you know we're we're married with three kids and they are worth as much time you know as I can possibly give them because we both work full time and one of the things that I don't want to let you know, my idea of providing for my kids get in the way of actually investing time in them, you know? And so, um, that's what scares me most off is that we just become, I would just become consumed by it. And, uh, and we actually met with a wealth advisor a while back and I asked him about that. And one of the things he asked was like, do do you need it? You know, how much money is enough kind of thing? And it was a surprising answer. I didn't think he would say that. Uh, but he did. He looked at us. He's like, you know, if sure, if you want to, but Run, you know, run the numbers. Where are you going to be in 40 years? You know, uh, and it's, it gets pretty ridiculous. You know, just the time value money is crazy and compounding interest. So I don't know. That's what makes me hesitate. Yeah. No, no, makes sense. Do your family and friends know of your wealth? Not at all. No, <laughs> no. I mean, I think our family and friends know that they know how we live. They know we both have government jobs. And, you know, it's kind of, it's very similar to the military. I mean, you can Google, uh, civil servant pay scales. And so if you both knew that we were GS 14s, you know, you could go across the, the pay scale and you say, okay, yeah, this is where they live and this is how much money they make. But I think the difference is what we do with it. Right. And that we live completely differently than them. And so, um, no, and, and we really want to keep it that way because we don't want, we don't want people to look at us differently or treat us differently. And we want to be the kind of people that they use that to do something, to do something positive with and not just to I don't know. We don't want to be known for our money because we don't really think of ourselves as that either. We're just regular. There's nothing special about us. I promise you. <laughs> you mentioned earlier that, that your wife came from a wealthy family. What was that like bridging, you know, your two backgrounds and philosophies and, and getting to and arriving to where you are today? Okay. So that's probably, that's probably the funniest thing about our marriage. So she's in here with me. She can't hear you, but so it could not possibly be more different. Our family backgrounds to me. She might not agree, but you have like the the agriculture farmer bootstrap fight to fight to survive kind of thing. Raise all your own food. If it can be fixed, I'll find a way. Versus like the you know her dad told me one time he hasn't mowed a lawn in twenty years, and it's not worth his time. If you look up this you know hourly rate, there's no way I can, I can pay for a lot of lawns to be mowed for that hourly rate, right? So bridging that between us was like the the clash of cultures. Right. It is kind of funny. So we've met in the middle. I would say some things, you know, it was very surprising for them that we would like fix our own cars, that we, I, I find uh, satisfaction in like mowing our grass, you know, taking care of the house, working on stuff. When something breaks, like, oh, Google it and try to figure it out. And 
I've talked to her dad about it and uh, it's kind of funny. You know, he's like, well, I just never really had an interest in that, but that's interesting. You know, so yeah, they definitely very different backgrounds. The funniest part actually is not just us talking about it, but seeing our parents together, like talking through different things and, and they have such different styles, especially our dads. So that's, it's pretty comical, but they get, everybody gets along really well. It's, it's a very good compliment. Like we bought this house. My parents didn't give us any money, but they were here every day, all day painting, you know, uh, uh, digging ditches, doing whatever we need to do to the house. And her parents, you know, their, their solution was that they showed up a little bit, but their solution was like, Hey, can we help financially? Can we, can we write a small check? What can we do? But they, uh, their avenue immediately was money. My parents avenue immediately was elbow grease. So it's just two different cultures, and it was really funny to me. Yeah, that's an interesting, you know, dynamic there. And I think we've had a few on that have that have had that, you know, where where you're coming from these two different backgrounds, and emerging, and you're trying to figure it out. How do you think y'all will approach it with your children? Yeah, so we've talked about that. It's really interesting. I, I think it will be a hybrid approach. We definitely we want to to teach them the benefits of, of just the frugal lifestyle. We really want to fight against materialism, and we've seen that in ourselves. We, of course, we see it in our world, and we really want to fight against this consumer mentality for the sake of consuming, right? So we've we've tried to to limit and ask people to limit. I'd say that this comes to a head every Christmas, you know, for anybody with kids, uh, especially if you've got parents that like to give and aunts and friends and family, and so we've had to try to talk to people and say, hey, could you, you know maybe limit it to like one big toy from your family this Christmas, you know, like let's just not go over the top. So we both agree on that for sure. We agree on the frugality because we've seen the immediate results. It's, it's not immediate, but seven years in the big scheme of things is a short time frame. And we've seen just, just the power that can have, I would say from investing standpoint, that's where I wanted to part from my family and the way I was raised. Obviously we want to teach saving uh, from a very early age and we're trying to work through that, but we want to teach the value of, compound interest and we want to teach the value of time you know and to really work through our kids with that so one of the things we've actually been looking into our oldest is only five so we got a lot of time but we would like to work through some instead of like an allowance like let's bring into an equities investment piece to that for our kids so you know they can actually whether it's a real or like a phantom account where they can learn to kind of look at companies and evaluate and, and make some decisions and then hopefully put some real money toward it even you know even if it's really small amounts so We'd like to bring that in and let them uh, give them a good start on that and try to teach them as best we can while they're still here. Yeah, no, I think that's awesome. So as you progress, is there a point down the road where you think you might take the foot off the gas, whether it be, you know, working full time or, you know, doing the different things you're doing, you know, as your net worth kind of, I mean, at this point, your, your, your compounded interest is going to outpace probably what you can put in into your portfolio. Is there a point where you're going to kind of hang it up or, or, or relax or take the foot off the gas? You know, um, it's really, it's an interesting thing. So you're right. Just run the numbers based on the historical average return of the market. In four years, it's just crazy dust. I didn't know this until this week, but in four years, we're projected to our portfolio will return more than our, our income, just like you said. So I didn't really, that's never been a thing, even a possibility in my mind. So it's really crazy. We have talked before, and one of the other motivations was, you know, with my wife, we didn't know if she wanted, would want to keep working, you know, if, if and when we had more kids. And I don't know that we'll have more now. She very emphatically says no. So uh, I, think, I think we're done. <laughs> I know that. I know that response. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think we're done. So 
uh, yeah, uh, that's still kind of an option. You know, if somebody has something that comes up, uh, we've kind of talked about some like passion projects that we would not want to pursue in the future. And, and that could be something, but we really, it's, we really like our jobs. Uh, it's really rewarding. And I, I could definitely see us continuing that work all the way till retirement age and, and hanging it up, you know, so I, I'd, I'd say 50 50 either way. Awesome. Well, just in closing here, let me wrap up with some rapid fire questions and get some last words of advice and, and then we'll cut it off because I know we're going long on you here. So as much as you're comfortable sharing on these, what's been your range of annual household income through your working life? Uh, okay. Yeah. Interesting. So when I first started with the government in 2010, I was making $44,000 a year. Uh, my wife was making 53. And so we've gone from there to now we're, uh, our, our government paychecks, uh, we're at 243 right now combined. Wow, good for you guys. And what's your household spending? It's uh, approximately 52 right now, 52K. That's with the 21K in date, daycare. So we're just over $30,000 uh, annually for the household. Okay. And then I think we touched on this, but financial goals, anything specific? No, no. They're not at this time. I mean, we're just, just going to try to, to ride it as long as we can. And then what's the most expensive car you've ever purchased? $7,300, a champagne minivan. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because you told, I think you wrote in the initial email, right? The car you drive has what, 230,000 miles on it? It does. Yes, 20 years old, 230,000 miles. Holy cow. So what do you get next? You're going to splurge on something or are you going to buy something used for 8,000 bucks again? I don't know. So what's actually going to happen versus what do I think, you know, a dream I'll do? I dream that I'll get a Tesla. Right. Or, you know, some kind of electric car because we're engineers and we think it's cool. But yeah, I'll probably go get a beater Honda Civic. Why, man? Good bucks and you're in your mid 30s. Get the Tesla. It, it's the most yeah. common. It's the most commonly referred to car on our show. Oh, yeah. And getting yeah, one I, used. I, you, I mean, you look at it, it's going to last you probably 20 years, maybe 25 or 30. I know. I know. Yes, it's hard. It's hard to take those habits out, right? It's. Like, <laughs> I, I, I know. I heard, I heard you guys talked about that before. Like, you know, when do you when do you flip the switch from becoming a you know from saver to spender? That's so hard. I don't totally, know because totally because you the behaviors that it takes to get there. You know, how do you just change that lifestyle immediately? And I don't see us doing it to be honest with you. I think we'd we'd rather find something something we can be passionate about that that that's something positive has to come out of this because otherwise. Why have we been given this kind of wealth? You know, and, and that that's kind of where we're we're starting to focus now. All righty. So last question here. If you when you look back at your story, right, your mid thirties, almost two million dollars, how much of this was due to luck and how much of this was due to skill? Okay, I would say luck is the stock market. Right. So we we could have had a, a ten year, you know, the the lost decade, right? And we we may or may not be having this conversation. So I would say that has been the luck piece because none of us can control that. Uh, I would say all the rest has been trying to learn, it, being blessed just with that curiosity to try to see how do we maximize this thing, you know, and and what kind of behaviors can we modify, uh, and what what gratification can we delay, and uh, at, at some healthy level, you know, and then but yeah, so I'd say that's that's not been luck, that's been sacrifice and, and intentional decision making. And would that be your final advice too? Is just to be intentional about what you're doing? I think so. I, I think you know, keep it simple. Uh, we don't have to get crazy and, or, or try to be, you know, super sophisticated and pick the latest hot stock. That's been one of my biggest mistakes, uh, early on trying to do that and kind of keep up and, and, and compete there. Uh, and I would say start young and the discipline. 
All right. Well, awesome. I think we've taken enough of your time now. So, so thanks for sharing. Really cool stuff. Really a uh, great story. And congrats on you and, and your t- to you and your wife on your success. So phenomenal yeah. job. And, and thanks for coming on. So everybody, that's Jay net worth of $1.8 million. Thanks so much. Thank you guys, both of you. Appreciate what you do. Thanks. Thanks for listening to the Millionaire's Unveiled podcast with Clark Sheffield and Chase Mattinson. For more stories, investment opportunities, and information, check out our website at millionairesunveiled.com. See you next time when you'll hear from another everyday millionaire.